Welcome to True Talk on WMNF 88.5, hosted by Ahmed and Samar. Samar is traveling, and it's me today. Today's show is live, and um, I'll be speaking to a reporter from Middle East Eye about what's happening in India to the Muslim community there. Uh, There are many accusations of human rights abuses and discrimination and bias targeting the Muslim community. And... um, more about that. So when we come back, um, we may also have time to take some of your phone calls. So stay tuned. We'll be right back after this short music break. This is True Talk on WMNF.
Welcome back to True Talk on WMNF 88.5 FM. And um, that song was by Amr Dieb called Nur Al Ain. Really popular, I guess, in the Arab world, all over. It's kind of an old song, though. Um, as I mentioned uh, on today's program, um, we're speaking about India and the status of Muslims there and the accusations of um, discrimination and uh, bias and, and hate crimes uh, against them. Um, so joining with me now is uh, a reporter with the Middle East Eye, Azad Aisa. And um, welcome to the program, Azad. Hi, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm reading your article that you actually wrote a little over a month ago. Um, it's actually, an, this one's an opinion for Indian Muslims, the end times have arrived. Um, and the subheadline says, 20 years after the anti-Muslim um, activities in Gujarat, an entire generation of Hindu nationalists are now more convinced than ever that eliminating Muslims will improve their lives. And it goes on how um, in this last uh, first week of the month of Ramadan, in Indian Muslims in the town of Karawuli um, were going around, going by, um, about their business when a bunch of um, Hindu worshippers on motorcycles draped in saffron scarves arrived in their neighborhood chanting and playing loudspeakers um, how is that act in itself uh, intimidating? Yeah, um, you know, uh, India is a complicated place um, in many ways. And, uh, you know, it's uh, touted as the world's biggest democracy. And it's, um, um, it's meant to be a secular democracy as well. But um, over the past uh, decade or so in particular, not that these things haven't happened before, but uh, over the past decade, especially from 2014, when um, the BJP party, um, which is a, a Hindu right-wing um, party, um, came into power led by Narendra Modi, um, they, have t they have been pushing this agenda of uh, making India into uh, a Hindu national state, something they call Hindu Rashtra. So this means that um, the state, the framework of the state and the makeup of the, of the identity of the state uh, would be fundamentally Hindu in nature and not secular. And so everybody else um, who live in India have basically uh, have to um, submit to that identity. Um, and that means that uh, the 200 million Muslims uh, and, and that's a lot, right? 200 million Muslims uh, right. um, have to essentially um, behave in a, in a way that, um, that, that does not allow them to exert their Muslim identity within India. So in the case of the article that you are looking at or are talking about right now, um, what is happening is that, um, you know, this was the first week of Ramadan and uh, people are praying, people are opening their fast. And, you know, as I say, they were just minding their own business. But at the same time, there was also um, a Hindu festival that was taking place, 
Um, and so these guys were worshippers, but they were actually uh, provoca- provocateurs, you know, they're coming in, uh, coming in to disrupt um, like Muslim uh, religious practices, basically. So coming in and then um, bringing loudspeakers and then uh, screaming out or singing out chants that says like, you know what, um, the day my, bo- my blood boils, I wish to show you your place. And then I will not speak, only my sword will, you know. Um, the day Hindus wake up, the consequences will be that the skull capoeira, which means someone who wears a mosque hat, right, will bow down and say victory to Lord Ram. So basically coming back to my point that you will submit to the Hindu state ultimately. So that's, it's not a case of someone coming by and then just, you know, having a, you know, blowing up a couple of fireworks and having some fun. But this is about coming outside a mosque and saying, um, you know, coming and provoking and um, and saying that uh, you know you don't belong here. Basically. So this this is not all. This sounds like a kind of a mob. Um, if if we were to imagine at the time here in America when they had um, mobs of KKK members uh, going and intimidating mm-hmm. black people, you know, minorities mm-hmm. uh, in America. And they would intimidate them, and then eventually these types of things uh, lead to violence. So when they chant, um, I guess they're chanting in what language? Oh, they're chanting, chanting in Hindu. In Hindu. Yeah, language. they're chanting in Hindu. Okay, in so Hindi language. the skull in, in, in one of the local languages as okay. well. I mean, there's, there's several languages. That the, the skull cap, this is what they're chanting, that the skull cap wearer, wear, meaning someone is wearing a skull cap, will yes. bow down yeah. and say victory to Lord Ram. The yeah. day my blood boys, I wish to show you your place. Then I will not speak, only my sword will. Meaning there's no dialogue, I'm just going to kill. Yeah. So there's a day that's going to come in the future that they're you know, chanting and celebrating about. Uh, when you say the word skullcap, well, yeah, Muslims do wear skullcaps. Uh, we call it, uh, I guess, Kufi in the Arab world or Taqiyah. Um, um, but also Jews wear skull caps. So imagine, you know, mobs of white supremacists going outside of a Jewish synagogue somewhere and chanting these things and uh, saying that the, you know, intimidating the Jewish community that those are that wear skull caps are going to bow down in victory to you know someone else. Um, there'd be uproar around the world that this type of behavior would not be acceptable, but somehow it seems to be becoming more and more normalized in India that people are not doing, the international community is not doing much about it, or are they? Um, so, I mean, the, the, the international community uh, has, has, I mean, I, I guess I should start again. Um, <laughs> first answer is that no, um, the, the international community is not saying anything about about uh, what's happening in India. Um, and there are various reasons for it. Um, but before we get to that, um, of late, there was one, one occasion or one event in which certain parts of the Muslim-majority uh, countries, you know, um, leaders from Muslim-majority countries spoke up uh, because uh, one of the BJP spokespersons made some derogatory comments about uh, the Prophet, uh, peace be upon him. And uh, having done so, um, this really upset some of the Gulf countries as well as the other Arab countries. And um, they 
you know, basically called uh, the Indian ambassadors and uh, told them this was unacceptable. And Qatar was one of the countries that, you know, led that. Um, but other than, other than that, you know, um, these kinds of events are taking place in India, uh, uh, as you say, continuously being normalized, mm-hmm. increasingly being, being um, erased on the international scene. And one of the reasons for that um, is that the world's attention, especially in the Western world, is on China. Okay. And um, India is seen as uh, an important ally in that potential fight with China. Uh, yeah. Let me get to that. We'll get to that, the China role and why America is looking possibly the other way, and that may be one of the reasons. Um, but first, uh, for our listeners, I'm speaking to Azad Issa. He is a senior reporter for Middle East Eye, based in New York City. Uh, he's worked with Al Jazeera English between 2010 to 2018, covering Southern and Central Africa uh, for the network. He is the author of The Muslims Are Coming uh, by HarperCollins India and Zuma's Bastard, um, Two Doc Books is the publisher of that. And we're talking about what's happening uh, in India and recent developments, uh, which it seems like it's nonstop. Uh, one event uh, after the other. You mentioned the BJP party, and let's just maybe provide some historical context for our listeners. Who are the BJP party? How long have they been around? And um, their recent rise to power, is this something new? Um, Is it since 2014? Or uh, what's the background of uh, this party? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, the BJP party is essentially, um, you know, you could say one of two of the biggest parties in, in India. The other party is the National Indian National Congress. Um, and Indian National Congress and, uh, was led by uh, Jawaharlal Nehru, and, uh, who was the first prime minister of India, as well as, uh, you know, we had uh, figures like uh, Gandhi, right? So that's what has been ultimately the image of India. It's been the Indian National Congress's sort of vision for India. Um, although that is also, um, you know, a kind of history that has been whitewashed because the Indian National Congress was also led by um, upper caste Hindus, you know, and India was, India's type of secularism was also um, designed and built up in the image of how, um, you know, the upper caste Hindus wanted India to be. Um, on the other side of, of, of the political spectrum was uh, these right-wing parties that ultimately... Uh, formed the BJP, okay, and um, and they hadn't been in power until um, the early, uh, sorry, the the the, the mid seventies. They they got a small uh, portion um, of um, of the vote um, in 1977, and uh, and later uh, in in the late nineties, uh, they they um, formed a coalition called the National uh, Democratic Alliance. And uh, they lasted for a couple of years. So they didn't actually, they, 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 were, they were kind of like popping up on a number of occasions, but they were not able to like really build a sort of majority or really build a kind of movement to change the, the landscape of politics in India. But um, uh, in 2014, the BJP finally came properly to power, you could say. It was a landslide victory. And um, since 2014, uh, Modi has been the prime minister, and uh, it governs, you know, a number of states, more than a dozen. Um, 
and um, essentially what that is what what the, what, it, what this has done is that it has it has pushed um, the Indian National Congress's politics, which was traditionally a little bit more left, has pushed it more to the center and more to like center right in a way, while the BJP has gone completely far right, and um, uh, they have now pushed. They finally brought the agenda from. The 1940s, which was like, you know, as I told you, there was an international congress, which was wanting to push this kind of uh, secular uh, version of India. And there were these right wing uh, movements um, called like the RSS, for instance, whom, for instance, um, maybe your listeners would know that one of the supporters, one of the members of the RSS um, uh, was, you know, the person who assassinated uh, Gandhi. Right Mm -hmm. now, essentially, these are the people now running India. Of the same, you know, these are the sort of like the uh, the, the ilk of people, um, and so from 2014, um, this party has now dominated, and they are now pushing this Hindu Rashtra idea. So this means that uh, they want um, you know beef to be um, uh, to be banned in in, in several states, and if, even if you are uh, suspected of uh, eating or transporting a cow. Um, uh, towards a uh, you know um, an avatar or something, um, you are you you can be lynched on the road. Um, then lynched on the road is this, uh, and this is uh, sanctioned by the law, or you're just saying this no, is mob? Not, you know, no, this is mob. This is mob. Not it's it's illegal to do so, of course, but mm-hmm. um, the police kind of turn a blind eye. And you say um, why is? I mean, I'm sure you know most of our listeners would know this, but why would transporting a cow or um you know eating beef uh, be something that's uh, that they would want to uh, attack others for this so this yeah so um a section of um uh, of uh, of the hindu um population believe that uh, cows are sacred right and um and this is especially for brahmins this is the upper castes and so they believe that cows are sacred and and you can't eat beef. Um, so India is one of the biggest exporters of beef, but the, it's not cow. It's not. Uh, it's not from cows. They're actually from buffalo. Um, but um, so the idea is that you know part of uh, any kind of like proto-fascist state um, is is that you try to build ident- an, ident- an identity for the nation that is very very singular. So people should dress in a similar way. People should speak a particular language. People should. Um, uh, have a certain diet, um, and so that's where uh, things like the the matters of uh, on, on beef, etc., come into play. That even though there are Hindus who eat beef, you know, and there are other populations, there are Christians in India, there are there are Jews, there are um, lower caste uh, Indians who don't identify with being Hindu, um, mm-hmm. the, who who also eat beef. But the idea is that you create a central idea of the state, so then. And everything that's outside of the central idea of the state then becomes like anti-state, you know. You, men- so, mm. you mentioned yeah. that the um, BJP is the ruling party now. These are essentially an offshoot of the RSS. Who uh, that ideology? These are the people that basically killed Gandhi and opposed to his uh, way. Uh, mm. Are now running India. What does BJP stand for? What does RSS stand for? What's the relation between the two? 
Um, the BJP stands for the Bharatiya Janata Party. Um, and uh, it's kind of like the Indian People's Party. Okay. And, um, and, and you could say that, um, you know, the RSS is basically like the feeder to, um, to the BJP. So the RSS is uh, the Rashtriya Swayam Sivak Sang, which is a, kind of like a paramilitary volunteer organization. You could say it's the biggest paramilitary organization in the world. And imagine it as a kind of like uh, organization that doesn't directly deal with uh, directly deal uh, with, with, with electoral politics. What it is, is that it's kind of like a, uh, like a sleeper cell kind of organization where you join it and you are trained. You have some sort of like uh, arms training. You have some disciplinary training. Uh, you have like ideology training. And then ultimately you are part of the RSS, but you could be part of multiple other organizations while being part of the RSS. So think about it like um, you could be a white supremacist and you could join a progressive party in the US, basically. Mm. And so you basically infiltrate and you, and you get into um, these spaces and then slowly you start like inculcating the RSS ideology there. So ultimately what this means is that the RSS is basically um, has now, you know, uh, okay, to, to take one step back, the RSS has also done a lot of charitable work, you know, so they have opened schools, they've opened, they, they do a lot of um, feeding schemes. So they are very embedded in the society. So, um, and part of that, they've been pushing these ideas that, you know, India is a Hindu state, ultimately. So you have a generation of people who have been brought up and sort of protected and also um, sort of um, supported by the RSS that are now within multiple you know, uh, sections of the state, you know, they're either in the Department of Defense, they're in the administrative services, uh, they're in the police, they um, are in the all, health sector. Are, are all BA, BJP member, party members f come from the RSS? Not necessarily so, not necessarily. But there's a close, um, but, but somehow RSS but yes, controls like BJP? Well, that's always the, that's always the tension, basically. So the RSS doesn't necessarily control them fully, but uh, there's these tentacles. So at times the BJP will push back at certain things. So for instance, in the early 2000s, you could say that um, the BJP um, were not right wing enough for the RSS at that time. And so... Um, so you're saying so the BJP already existed separately. RSS was there and RSS started infiltrating more and more of the BJP yeah. until now they control the BJP. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Are they in so, control so, of other so Modi, organizations? Modi, Modi they, is a graduate of the RSS. Okay, he's a graduate of RSS and he helped it grow. Now, Modi himself is controversial. He's the current prime minister of India. He's been in power yeah. now since 2014. Before that, he was a leader in Gujarat. And at one point, he was banned from even coming to the United States. Tell us about that. Yeah, um, so Narendra Modi was um, the chief minister of uh, Gujarat, which is a western state uh, in in India. And in 2002, there were there was a major intercommunal violence that took place. Uh, there was a burning of a train that resulted in um, you know um, 
maybe 60 uh, Hindu pilgrims, you know, in the deaths of Hindus, 60 Hindu pilgrims. And, 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 and this was blamed on, um, on some Muslims. But uh, until now, that hasn't been fully uh, verified. But anyhow, there were, as a result of that allegation, there were these, these protests as well as rallies and kind of like massacres of, of Muslims in Gujarat that took place. Um, and uh, more than a thousand, uh, I would say between a thousand and two thousand people were killed. Hundreds are missing, and um, it, the, 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 the events were brutal. Uh, there were like mass rapes, uh, destruction of uh, properties, uh, you know, looting. It was uh, it was insane. Now, what uh, the allegations is that uh, Modi didn't really even try to stop this um, kind of uh, attack from taking place. And in many ways, he was accused of like sort of uh, uh, condoning the violence. And the police actually uh, were supposedly giving like um, directions to the looters, you know, um, and to the insurrectionists as such. So Modi uh, was cleared of, 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 um, of any wrongdoing, but... Uh, I think it was uh, around 2005, maybe, that he was not allowed into the U.S. Um, so basically, um, there was a uh, there was a move in the U.S. to kind of pressure um, the government from allowing him to come in, and he was he was supposed to come in just on a tourist visa to give some talks, and uh, he was not allowed to come in. And uh, when he became prime minister, then uh, Obama basically changed that. But what's interesting about that is that um, I, I can't remember, and I'm sorry about this, but I can't remember the exact law that uh, the U.S. Um, uh, used to ban him from coming, from coming in. But it's a kind of law that, um, that's very, very rarely used. And it was used in this, in, in this case just to illustrate that the U.S. actually cared about the situation in India. But Modi at the time was not seen as a potential candidate for prime ministership, if you, if you understand what I mean. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't really, uh, uh, it wasn't seen as a significant move from the US because he wasn't really seen as that important. But that changed obviously in the following years because what happened was that uh, Modi uh, was pushed by the RSS and pushed uh, by other people within the BJP as someone uh, who was very um, pro-capital, very pro-corporate uh, uh, and big capital. Uh, sorry, I said that. And um, he was also um, someone who could, who was seen as putting Muslims in, into their place as such. Um, so he was backed. So if you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5. We're speaking about the rise of Hindu nationals and uh, a movement called Hindutva and uh, the attacks and subjugation of Muslims in India right now and concerns about Muslim, um, Indian Muslims, about what's happening there. We're speaking to a senior reporter from Middle East Eye, Azad Isa, about an article um, that he had written um, uh, about that, uh, titled, uh, For Indian Muslims, the End of Times Have Arrived, 20 Years After the Anti-Muslim uh, pogroms in Gujarat, an entire generation of Hindu nationals are now more convinced than ever that eliminating Muslims will improve their lives. Why are more and more Hindus, um, especially hardcore Hindus, 
and part of this Hindutva movement, why are they convinced that eliminating Muslims will help improve their lives? Well, um, India is uh, a country that uh, has a lot of poor people. Um, and um, the Muslim population uh, uh, have been basically presented as kind of scapegoat for a lot of like India's um, stagnation as a nation. So, so for instance, um, uh, Indian Muslims are kind of positioned or kind of represented as backward and uh, like uneducated and uh, kind of like the whole Orientalist uh, trope of like, of being, um, you know, uh, uh, essentially like dragging the society down, you know, uh, when it comes to like gender um, equality. And uh, so, so uh, part of this is that um, the idea is that uh, what the RSS has done is that they've pr presented this, this perception of Indian Muslims of having um, of, of of Islam rather coming into India over like you know three four five hundred years ago and then occupying and invading the country and then basically changing the nature of India um, and essentially setting it back. So there's this idea that you know um, uh, that India was a thriving civilization and all these invaders came in and kind of like set it back and kind of made them insecure and made them weak. And, um, and if it hadn't been for the Muslims, they would be a, like a first world nation. So, so that's, the, that's like sort of the, the background with regards to the, the ideology. And then when they look at Indian Muslims, you know, Indian Muslims uh, have been traditionally, you know, um, been very, very much ghettoized, have not been given much uh, opportunity and so when they look at the reality of many Indian Muslims being very poor, etc., then they, in their mind, they see, you know, the, the, the sort of like um, the stereotype comes to life, you know, that, you know, look, look, look how they live kind of thing. But not looking at the fact of the matter is that, you know, even though India was a secular state uh, from 1947, uh, well, it's taught to be a secular state, uh, Indian Muslims were at the bottom of the hierarchy, along with um, Dalits. And so um, what this means now is that the Hindu nationalists have basically tried to create this atmosphere in which other poor Hindus now will basically uh, feel more empowered that if they join with the Hindu nationalist agenda, then they have a better chance of getting you know, access to the resources of the state. So it kind of like suppress Muslims even further. I so, hope that makes some sense. Right. So, um, but are any of their claims true as far as when Muslims actually ruled India? Uh, first, how long did they rule India before all of this? And um, did they subjugate Hindus uh, to any type of, to this type of oppression that they're claiming or holding them back? I mean, in your opinion. Um, so, you know, uh, there's this idea that Muslims ruled for like a thousand years, and that's not really true. Um, Muslims came to, um, to the continent uh, several times. There were the, there were the Turks, um, then the, Af the Afghans. Uh, there were also um, the Mughals. And, um, 
and there were there were brutal conquests for sure, of course, like all conquests everywhere. But um, the the majority of the time were the Mughals, and the Mughals didn't come into India and stay in India uh, as sort of occupiers in a way. They became pretty much part of the landscape of the continent, of the subcontinent, and so they didn't come in as sort of like looters, um, like the British, for instance, or they take come into come on to any place and then take everything and move to, you know, build build the country elsewhere, you know, which is what Britain did. Um, so um, the Mughals came in and um, and basically made India home. And, uh, and, and there is no um, major uh, historical record of Hindus and Muslims being um, at each other's throats during this, these periods. Uh, the actual much of this history, and and I'm not a historian, right? So you know, um, your listeners should uh, um, could, could do some research of their own as well. But um, much of this recent animosity uh, has its roots in the census uh, that took place um, in um, I think it was the late 19th century, um, in which. What the British did was that they came in and they were in for already a uh, hundred years or so. And what they did was that they tried to codify and classify um, people. And so in doing that, what they did is that they created a false majority um, of Hindus, whereby you, had, you, you, you never really had um, uh, a clear demarcation between people before the British uh, created the census. So what that means is that if they looked at Muslims, they said, okay, these are Muslims and everybody else, if you're a Christian, okay, you're Christian. But then if you are, if you're anything remotely uh, representing, you know, uh, the Hindu faith, then you're going to be all classified into one. So they created a majority um, of Hindus mm. where many people did not necessarily feel that they were part of that religion. Okay. And so as a result of that, they created the, the this element of majority and minority where it didn't really exist before. Okay. Okay. And having, having done that, um, that created sort of anxieties. And so when, when independence movements started building, um, and then in the, you know, in the early 20th century, you know, including like things like Zionism, et cetera, that started building in other places. Um, what you had was that people started building off this idea of minority and majority. And, and holding on to this identity that was just actually presented to them or given to them just like 30, 40 years prior. And it could have um, been basically a result of their occupiers, the British. It just seems like so many problems in those regions that we still face today is a direct result of the meddling of the, um, of the British no, occupation. No, uh, I mean, absolutely. Um, and then... Uh, uh, essentially, uh, the British, like in, in time, in, tr in trying to stall, sort of like um, liberation movements, what they did was that they basically pitted these groups against each other. You know, giving a little bit to one side and then taking away from another side, and then blaming the other side for the loss of those uh, privileges as such. And so you you created this continuous animosity. Now within that, just like Zionism, in a way. Um, you had this idea of Hindutva being built up as kind of like this idea of, uh, you know, um, creating this idea of the past, 
you know, and how we're going to retrieve that glorious past. Mm. And, um, and so, even if um, that, even if that past is partly fabricated, it's kind no, of, a lot of, a lot of that past is not real at all. Mm. There was no, there was no India, you know, before there were, there were, there, there, of course there were, yeah, it was just a huge con- subcontinent, you know. So, but even they, in like in Arabic, when they say about India, they called it, you know, El Hind. Um, I mean, there was, um, you know, the Hind nation, or I guess, uh, but maybe not necessarily religiously. But I wanted to, since you brought it up as far as uh, Zionism, there was, you know, another article that I um, saw that you, um, one of your articles about the connection between India and Israel. And this mm-hmm. article is uh, titled India and Israel, the Arms Trade in Charts and Numbers. Since establishing ties in 1992, India has become Israel's biggest and most dependable purchaser of weapons. So, um, as, so aside from, uh, tell us more about that, the, the weapons connection. But, um, is there also a ideological connection that's happening? And I see some, you know, charts here how, uh, Indian Israel defense deals, uh, had been going and now, um, that, you know, they're spending so yeah. much on Indian weapons. Yeah. So um, India did not recognize Israel immediately um, when uh, Israel was uh, sort of formed in 1948, um, and um, it took a number of years. You know, it was the early 50s that they basically recognized Israel, um, and um, India was. Um, very much uh, a proponent of uh, Palestinian self-determination for quite a while. But they did have some secret deals with Israel in the 60s, and especially after 67, um, in which uh, the Israeli um, uh, military-industrial complex are taking off, you know, tremendously. Um, and uh, again, going back to the Hindu nationalists, they, you know, Although there's this perception that India was completely on the side of uh, Palestinians, uh, Hindu nationalists would often um, ask questions and uh, call on India to kind of like normalize and create full diplomatic ties with Israel, you know, throughout the 60s and the 70s. Then um, in, um, at the end of the 80s, uh, with the fall of the Berlin Wall, you know, the Cold War, um, China... Uh, recognized um, or created uh, relations or diplomatic ties with Israel and India then followed suit in 92. So that's uh, 30 years, uh, you know, this year. And uh, since 92, uh, things basically accelerated because India then started diversifying its arms imports. So whereas they depended a lot on Russia or the former Soviet Union um, uh, in the 60s and 70s in particular, uh, and 80s, um, they started then thinking, you know what, uh, this now new country called Russia, we don't know how long it's going to, you know, going to be our supplier and we can't be relying on just one major supplier, so we need to expand. And so they looked to Israel and they also looked to Israel as a way to create better ties with the US because as as a result of the Cold War ending, India also wanted to be part of this like global uh, capitalist economy. And so um, to get closer to the US, uh, they saw Israel as a kind of uh, way to 
uh, improve their sort of like uh, chances, their trust with the U.S. So, um, um, yeah, I mean, so then the, these military trials expanded and between 2000 and 2010, um, and it didn't matter who was in charge, it was both the BJP um, from like 98 to 2003 or 2004, I think. And then it was um, the Congress party um, until 2014. But between 2000 and 2010, India bought like uh, 10 billion Ten billion uh, uh, dollars worth of arms from from Israel, and when uh, even though they purchased these arms, and it was now like you know uh, not under the table sort of thing as it as it had been in the sixties, um, the relations itself was not very pronounced, you know, in public. So you wouldn't see the Prime Minister of uh, India making a big show of being close to Israel because they they felt still a little bit kind of like embarrassed. It in a way, and I, and I use the word embarrassing with quote marks. Um, but um, once Modi came to power in 2014, then you see uh, a complete shift in the approach by India. And uh, Benjamin Netanyahu was prime minister also at the time. So Modi and Netanyahu basically connected and felt that they were on the same page on many elements. And this one of them being, of course, Islamophobia. Um, and, and in terms of using uh, using Muslims as a kind of scapegoat uh, to build the arms industry, to say, okay, you know, we have this Muslim population, we need to be scared of them, kind of thing. Uh, and of course, Palestinians are not just Muslims, but um, you know, in the larger scheme of the, the Arab world around Israel. Um, and so, from 2014 to now, you've had uh, kind of like a minimum of one billion dollars uh, arms trade per year. So I think that's good enough introduction. Right. Perhaps. And and yeah, this is very deep. Uh, yeah, this is a good enough introduction as far as the increased weapon <laughs> trade between India and, uh, and and Israel. And if you're joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF. We're speaking to Isa Azad, who is a senior reporter with Middle East Eye. He's based in New York City. Um, but beyond the weapons, it seems like there is a uh, an alliance that's continuing to get stronger and stronger between uh, the Hindu movement and Dutfa or these right wing movements in um, in in uh, India um, with Zionist movements um, in Israel. And it mm-hmm. seems like it, when I did some research on it, it seems like this is a realization from the beginning of uh, mm. Hindutva leaders that they've always looked at the Zionist movement as a type of model um, yeah. and that they've uh, and, and actually were looking for um, and were vocal to support you know a Jewish state so um, I had read a comment by one of the founders of the Hindutva movement I guess his name is Vinyak um, Savarkar who said, yeah. quote, in the 1920s, he wrote, uh, quote, if the Zionist dreams are ever realized, if Palestine becomes a Jewish state, um, it will gladden us almost as much as our Jewish friends, end, end, end quote. So even back then, in the 1920s, he understood what the Zionist dream was. Um, and until something that until today, some politicians you know, continue to be in denial about that somehow... The leaders or the you know uh, the movements in Israel want 
a, a two-state solution when really they've been working since the beginning on one state, but it's Jewish-only state mm-hmm. and a state only for Jews. Um, and another one of their other leaders uh, from the RSS movement, Madaf Sajif uh, Galwalker, he said, yeah. quote, um, the Jews had maintained their race, religion, culture, and language, and all they wanted was their national territory to complete their nationality. And he's speaking specifically about the Zionist movement or Jews that um, that are connected to the Zionist movement, not, of course, uh, all. And and this is what you know he was quoted as saying. But it seems like um, the BJP is continuing and looks towards the Israel model of now that, you know, they've declared themselves a Jewish-only state or a state for Jews only, or, yeah, I guess, I mean, I don't, they call it a Jewish state, but it allows for other people to be there as kind of a model um, for what they want to establish in India. But (laughs) India is a much bigger, you know, country uh, with, with so much more diversity I'm not sure if they have the capability to do what the Israelis are doing in um, Palestine uh, of apartheid. I mean, are they trying to push apartheid also in India? Yeah, I, I mean, there are many elements to your your comment and your question. Um, yeah, uh, India is a lot bigger um, geographically, uh, demographically. Um, it's it's a huge huge it's a huge country, um, and yes, they are looking towards um, Israel to replicate many things um, that the Israelis do. But they don't, or they uh, to some extent they realize they don't have the full support of like the U.S. Um, with regards to implementing everything that Israel, you know, can implement. You know, um, so. Uh, Israel has like uh, up to like 50 laws or so that discriminate, you know, against Palestinians. Um, India, you know, has a, a bunch of laws that have, you know, have come up now that are moving in that direction, that replicate kind of like uh, Israel's, um, you know, like law of return. You know, are you referring um, to, for example, the the citizenship amendment law? Yes, exactly. So. What yeah. is that so about? for instance, so the Citizen Amendment uh, Act basically means that um, you know if you're if you're Muslim in in India and you don't have your documents, so of course India is a huge country with a lot of like flaws with its uh, bureaucracy, and so there are many people who don't have papers, you know, the identity documents, and there are also people who are refugees, there are also people who are migrants that come from Bangladesh and might have come prior to partition, you know. And so what they have done is that uh, they have essentially said that if you're Muslim and you can't prove that you belong, then you'll be put into a camp or you'll be deported. But if you are Hindu um, and uh, you're from, or like Buddhist, or so any, any of the religions that they deem to be indigenous to India, okay, then, and you're from Afghanistan or from Pakistan or from Bangladesh or from, um, maybe not Bangladesh, but from around, from Nepal, uh, etc. Then you you are allowed back, allowed back, so-called, into India and you can get citizenship. So if you're Muslim, 
you and you are living in India and you don't have the right paperwork, then you could be in big trouble. But if you're Hindu uh, and you're from outside um, and they list a particular bunch of countries, then you will be given sort of automatic protection. So, so why did, sort of, how did they justify singling out the Muslims and saying the Muslims won't get the same treatment? I mean, it's an obvious blatant discrimination and, you know, um, I guess anti-Muslim, you know, Islamophobia. How well, did they justify it? To, to be honest, I'm not. I, I don't fully understand how they've justified it. But they, they, they essentially justified on on the contra. They, they, they are justifying the fact that, uh, or the idea that India is the only place that these Hindus can go to, ultimately. So it's so kind the of the same that argument that the. Israel makes, hey, this is the only place we have in yes. the world. The Arabs yeah, have exactly. all these other countries. You can go there. Exactly. As if... Exactly. Yeah. So the implication is that, you know, they can go to other places. You know, what choice do these Hindus have? Um, but, and, and that's fine. You can make that argument, but then you got to then admit that your country is not a democratic state. It's basically it's like, a yeah. ethno... ethno exactly. It's like an ethnocracy now, like yes. in the way Israel is an ethnocracy. And I also got, got to point out that, um, you know, this is not just about Muslims only being targeted or Christians being targeted. Um, if you, in the ethnocracy, you know, um, where you sort of like, you're not a democracy and you're, and you're not a complete sort of like uh, fascist state yet, you know? There's elements of both, elements of democracy and elements of fascism in it, um, like Israel is also. Um, if you are Hindu and you speak out against the ethnocracy, you speak out against, the Mo against Modi and his government, you also become a target. Because the idea of, of the ethnocracy is that you've got to essentially follow the line of the state, basically, and you gotta, you've gotta, you gotta, you gotta submit to basically the one, the I, one, the one single idea of the nation, the one single idea of, of the language, the one single idea of the religion, etc. And so, if you don't fit into that, and and you are Hindu, you know, you're not even part of the minority, then ultimately you become an outsider. So there are others in India, you know, uh, activists who are not just Muslims who are targeted as a result of this. Are the other political parties making any, have, do they have any momentum? Is there any chance that the BJP can fall out of power or what's happening? No, there's, um, there's very little chance that um, Modi will lose the next election. Um, the the opposition parties are extremely weak. Um, Indian National Congress is is basically like a, a family project now, right? Or it has been for a while. And uh, they aren't able to basically capture the imagination of the, of the people because they're seen as inherently corrupt and seen as a kind of legacy project, you know. Um, and uh, the other parties are too small. Um, and uh, the truth, Truth be told, is that you 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 know, in, in, and I could, I stand to be corrected, but uh, you know, in many ways, like um, it mirrors the the situation in the U.S., where you have a really bad, problematic party, and then you have one that's slightly less problematic, you know, but they're both on the same page on most things, 
And uh, when it comes to uh, things like uh, Kashmir, um, you know, um, the, the, uh, the BJP and the Congress Party are on similar, um, similar um, uh, wavelength. And um, I would, this is why, I mean, I wrote this piece about, uh, that was titled, um, what was it titled, um, you know, um, uh, for instance, I think the one, the one from just looking from, I wrote in 2019, you know, India sends a signal to Muslims, you're no longer welcome. Right. Um, and, um, and, you know, by the way, I hear this a lot from my, uh, Indian Muslim friends that I know that live here in Tampa, uh, who oftentimes go back uh, to India during summer holidays, and they're actually choosing other destinations like uh, Turkey or Europe or you know somewhere else because they don't feel safe going to India and they feel like India is not theirs anymore. They feel like this is you know it's not the India they grew up in, and they don't yeah. even recognize it and. They don't want to go there and you know support this government that's currently there and spend their money, and then on top of that, be humiliated and feel unsafe uh, in those places. So they're actually looking. So for for I guess um, Indian Muslims who are living abroad, they themselves don't feel safe going back. So it, it kind of if they're all going to leave or not return or try to push back against it, that only will empower the, the current ruling party even more. Yeah. Um, Indian Muslims are, uh, face a huge uh, uphill task here because, um, you know, they've got to be very careful uh, with the activism um, in the U.S. as well because, as we said right, right at the beginning of this conversation, uh, there is... Uh, a tendency for the U.S. U.S. state, you know, to be uh, partial towards uh, India because of a larger geopolitical um, game that's going on, and um, and so Indian Muslims uh, also don't feel safe in the U.S. Speaking up about this, to be quite honest, as someone who's reporting on this, um, you know, people will want to talk, you know, off the record. And you would think that this is just like the the Uyghurs, you know, from from um, East Turkestan, uh, Xinjiang, from China, uh, who are only in this position. But Indian Muslims are in a similar position. So are Kashmiris as well, mm. uh, who who are from Indian occupied Kashmir. So um, so Indian Muslims are in a, in, a, in a bit of a find themselves in a bit of a quagmire because um, on one hand they they've got to speak out, on the other hand, uh, if they do. They, their family stand to be targeted back home. Well, if they we're gonna go have home, to, sorry, we're going to actually have to leave it there because uh, NPR News is coming up now. Thank you so much, uh, Azad Issa, NPR News is next.